You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. When crisis is the context for the past and present, hopeful people manage the now and imagine a future. When I first conceived my book, Crisis Contemplation, I thought it would end with the chapter on healing. It didn't take long to realize that although our hope of healing has dominated our dreams and our social narratives throughout my lifetime, those dreams have roots in the politics and social concerns of this present era. We have to imagine more peace than we currently have and more justice than the mere conversion of racist policies will allow. A transformative change is needed. We are not just organisms functioning on a biological level. Our sphere of being also includes stardust and consciousness. We all have a spark of divinity within, a flicker of the holy fire that can be diminished, but never extinguished. If we are treated as prey, stolen from our native lands, killed without restraint by those agencies charged with the responsibility of keeping order, our sense of empowerment and agency may wane. During a crisis, survival becomes the focus. Understand now, prey run from predators. And so without realizing it, as we spiritually and actively seek to escape the clutches of white supremacy, we begin to think of ourselves as hapless victims of a prowling beast that cannot be stopped. When parents of BIPOC children give the talk today, we're teaching our children to survive predation. But we have to imagine more. We have to imagine a new future before we can build it and inhabit it. But how do we imagine what we've never known? Can we engage the imaginative constructs of Afrofuturism as a vehicle for creating a future? Cosmic rebirthing requires a reclamation of everyday mysticism. If we're to remember our cosmic origins, if we're to recognize the star stuff in our bodies, if we're to understand our biogenic connections one to another, then we need more mystery, not less. During crisis, we survive in community through the contemplative enhancement of discernment by tapping into spiritual wisdom sources by reordering our taken-for-granted values, and by reliance upon the spirit within. From the Center for Action and Contemplation, I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes. And this is The Cosmic We. Wow, Dr. B. Chapter 6 already. Futurism and cosmic... Rebirth. Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, I think uh, this is a heavy chapter. This is a big chapter. This is a very intriguing chapter. And how do you want to begin this conversation? Well, I think we need to ground it by talking about 
what Afrofuturism is. And, you know, it gets pretty complicated and I'm not going to I'm not going to make it any more complicated than it needs to be. So let's start out with a simple definition. Afrofuturism is a claim that there are black people in the future. Now, that sounds like um, an unnecessary statement <laughs> that there are black people in the future. But because of the oppression and the violence against people of color, this is not an easy claim to make. It's sort of like you shouldn't have to say Black Lives Matter. But you do have to say that. And Afrofuturism is the claim that we make it. We get there. It, it was a term that was coined by Mark Derry in 1993. He wrote an essay, Back to the Future. And he talked about the fact that the very essence of African strategies for survival is the creative impulse, the mythology, and the leap forward into the future. So we have a long history of that because even the first generation of enslaved Africans brought with them stories of flying Africans, very futuristic thoughts. So it didn't really start with Wakanda. Um, it began way before then. So I think it was Tony Cade Bambara who talked about the necessity of magic and of creativity for Afrofuturism. And she says something like this. She says, people could fly. Say that long ago in Africa, some of the people knew the magic. They would walk up on the air like climbing up on a gate. And they flew like blackbirds over the fields. Now, Toni Morrison, when you hear something like that, you go, yeah, yeah, right. People were flying. Uh, but Toni Morrison says, the one thing you say about a myth is there's got to be some truth in there somewhere. So basically what you're looking at is black speculative tradition, which is the spiritual mother of folks like Octavia Butler, Amiri Baraka, and Sun Ra. These are all Afrofuturists. Recent artists who are Afrofuturists are Janelle Monet, Missy Elliott, and of course the movie Black Panther. So Afrofuturism expresses itself in many, many genres. Science, technology, social media, the arts, film, song, music. I mean, you got Sun Ra right up in that mix. He was one of the first. So in other words, is, is Afrofuturism the multidisciplinary approach or vehicle of seeing ourselves differently? Yes, it's that and a little more. Okay, that and a little it's more. It's shape-shifting. It's the ability to, it, it's almost as if, um, hey, you can't catch us because we can become invisible. You can't kill us all because some of us are going to make that leap into the future. We're going to transcend because there's magic in our midst. Um, Josh Jones says this about it. He says, Afrofuturism transforms trauma the erasure of the black past, the bleak prospects for the future into creative, powerful displays of creative agency. And you know, no matter what, it's a radical act for black people to imagine a future. Yeah, that, that's powerful. The transformation of trauma in the understanding that it is a radical act <laughs> to see yourself differently. 
So you, you mentioned Black Panther, which obviously uh, Wakanda Forever. These are uh, some of the more recent. But would you include in this, in that particular genre, movies like Creed or Black Adam or The Woman King? These movies that that seek to identify the a particular identity that transcends the trauma, that transcends the oppression, that transcends the 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 narratives, right? That have the stock narratives and gives a future, a vision of a future that is prophetic, that is engaging, that is inspiring. Yeah, and it's not like a pie-in-the-sky future either. It's a future that you can actually imagine inhabiting. So I haven't, you know, gotten a chance to see many movies lately. So I haven't seen Creed or The Woman King, which is probably (laughs) going to be a little too violent for my taste. (laughs) But um, of the ones you mentioned— The Woman King sounds like it's probably more in the genre than Creed would be. Creed is, from what I understand without having seen it, about identity and uh, self-respect and all of that kind of stuff. But I don't see the futurism. Um, You may have seen it and you may know more more about it than I do. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about Creed is that it's on the heels of the Rocky Balboa, you know, the movies, the Rocky 1, Rocky 2, which is, you know, obviously starring Sylvester Stallone. Apollo Creed was one of Rocky's uh, arch nemesis or and became a friend in the in the movie. And of course, Apollo had a son. And his son in, in the future Creed movies, which is, the, you know, kind of the narrative, that movie is based upon the son's identity and the son's evolving into a boxer. And uh, But what's interesting is that, you know, the from a pop culture standpoint, Rocky was was it for, for many years as a kid growing up. I mean, I remember modeling, you know, running up, you know, when Rocky Balboa ran up on the top of, in Philadelphia and he's standing there with his, you know, I mean, I literally remember doing push-ups and sit-ups in my in my living room trying to get strong like Rocky. And so they, they, there was an inspirational, but today, you know, uh, BIPOC individuals, black and brown individuals watching not Rocky Balboa, you know, the Italian stallion, but they're watching Creed, right? And Creed... Uh, they're seeing themselves in this young man. They're seeing themselves in the narratives, in the inspirational stories that are being told in these movies. And so I, that's why I asked, would, would Creed and, and movies like that be fit in this Afro, in a, in a more modern Afrofuturism, you know, perspective here? And so that, that's why I put that in there. But, but it's very interesting, uh, doc, Dr. B. I think this is, this is language, a framework that many, of, many people, many of us are very new to. Um, this understanding, as you indicated, this is not something that's new. I mean, this is something that has been engaging for, for, for generations. I mean, the understanding here, just the language Afrofuturism may be new to people. And could you help us, you know, understand the, a little bit more this, you've already tapped into it, but to, you know, why this is important, why seeing our, ourselves differently is critical. Because you can't really survive without hope, Dr. Nani. You know, what Afrofuturism does is it says, there's hope. There's a way out of this because of the cyclical nature of oppression. You can absolutely lose hope because your generation fought, you know, segregation. And yet here it comes again and people are being killed by police officers, unarmed, innocent folk. It just... It seems to shape shift and come back in every generation. 
which I think we talked about in one of the chapters. So what Afrofuturism does is it says, we can leap beyond the ordinary, that we are more than the color of our skin, that we're more than what people have decided our limitations are, that we have magic within our bones. And I think the person who gives you a visual depiction of what Afrofuturism, the very best, is Mikhail Owuno. And we did an interview with him early on. We sure did, yeah. His work is spectacular. Now, that's Afrofuturism at its best, at its very best because he is doing photography that shows the sacred self of people of color. I think it was Awuno who says, the question I asked myself was how can I transfigure black bodies from sites of death and state violence into transcendent forms, into vessels of eternal cosmic life? He calls himself an astro-black mythologist. <laughs> I mean, that that's really something. The astro communicates how life in many African traditions is in constant communication with interstellar and planetary contexts. The black evokes blackness as a divine and cosmic principle of the universe, and mythology serves as a mode of knowledge that fuses science, religion, and art to transform human consciousness. So that's what an astro-black mythologist is, and he certainly is one. Yeah, I, I really love that. Uh, and you're right, he is a, a great example um, to describe or to articulate and illustrate really what it means to see yourself differently. I, I think in a conversation with him, I remember discussing this and I remember him saying that, you know, I didn't really want to portray black bodies through the narratives of others, but I wanted to dis I wanted to display black bodies through how we should see ourselves or how we really are. And so there is this, this revelation there. There is this hope that's given there, right? That it's not through a narrative of someone else's eyes that he's telling the story. What you say about me, it is what I say about myself or what I see in myself, the authentic self and the divine image that the, right, the transcendence that he's trying to present, the, the divinity within humanity that he's trying, that oneness there, the, the universal connection that he's trying to display, it's beautiful. And he does it in such a beautiful way that you cannot help but to be inspired. You cannot help but to continue to have hope for a brighter and better and more inspired future. And, and so I, you're right that, that he is a great example. And there are many others within the genre of art, within the genre of literature that articulate in such a beautiful way also. You know, it, it's really important because... Blackness has been um, associated with the demonic, with uh, bad events. Um, when we say something is dark, we usually associate that with evil. It's really a point of power to transform the blackness that whiteness created and allow the blackness that divinity created. 
because there is a blackness of darkness of the womb. There is the blackness, the earth was dark and void, doesn't mean that um, <laughs> there was any evil present. It means there was an alternation of light and dark at the creation of the universe. And so the expansiveness of blackness is what Afrofuturism allows for, so that our children can begin to see themselves not stamped into a mold of expectations or the lack thereof, but can see themselves as cosmic, knowing, of course, that the entire universe is made out of dark matter and dark energy. Now, that's a powerful blackness. In the book, Dr. B, you, you describe a section and you describe this concept uh, in regards to the blessing of liminality, the blessing of liminality. And we describe liminal space, um, this in-between space, in reference to transitioning and transfiguring trauma. I would like you to, to speak a little bit more about this. Could you help us to understand how there is a blessing in this in-between space, this liminal space. For, for those who may, I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. I was trying to describe this idea of, of liminal space. I was trying to paint a picture, Dr. B. And, um, you know, we have children and, and a lot of our kids and, and, and many of our listeners may understand what I'm talking about. There's these, there's these trampoline uh, venues where you have birthday parties and the kids go and they just jump all day long. I mean, just bouncing all over the place. And uh, as a 48-year-old man, I've learned very quickly that that there's this concept of bouncing on a trampoline and that there's a, a liminal space. There's an in-between space that I found myself in when I'm jumping up in the air. And it's just like I'm, and for a moment, there is a little, there's uncertainty there's ambiguity. There is the potential that things can go one way and possibly another way, right? There's instability. There's doubt. There's questioning. I use that example of being in that space where the younger kids, there was no doubt. They, they had fun. They knew that they were going to land appropriately and that nothing was going to hurt when they bounced off the trampoline. But for me, there was a lot of doubt, a lot of uncertainty. Could you, as the author here, help us to understand how there is a blessing in liminality? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's Victor Turner's idea. Um, liminality is a betwixt and between space, neither here nor there. Um, Victor Turner likens it to death or to being in the womb, to invisibility to darkness, to the wilderness, to eclipse. When you are uh, in a liminal space, you have the advantage of being able to see what you could not see in other circumstances. In other words, it's like being a fly on the wall. You're neither here nor there, but you're aware of what is going on. So it's sort of like a ritual passage is what it is. So it's the ritual passage from one state of being to another state of being. And this is the in-between state, sort of like you were talking about when you're jumping and there's that moment before you land, you know, there's that space in between, or it's like the space between your heartbeats. Your heart beats, there's a pause where the mystery lies before it beats again. You don't know whether it's going to beat again or not. You hope so. 
there's a pause between drum beats. And that's where the power lies. It's in the spaces, the interstices in between. What I'm talking about is the fact that we are in the midst of ritual passage from one state of being to another. You know, we thought during the civil rights movement that we had a goal ahead of us. We would march until we got to that goal. And then we would take the brass ring, declare victory, and go on about our lives. And it didn't happen that way. Because progress doesn't happen all in one fell swoop. No matter how much you march, you're still going to have other issues of oppression that arise in other generations. So what we really did was end one phase of a movement toward healing and wholeness in preparation for the next stage of preparation for healing and wholeness. So we are moving from one ritual passage to the next ritual passage. And when we recognize that, we we don't get as discouraged when things don't happen the way we want them to happen immediately. I would have liked for the death of Martin Luther King to have been the event that caused the nation to come to its senses so that once and for all, the founding documents that required that all folks are equal would be implemented throughout the society. It did for a little while. Laws were passed. Some were enforced. Some were not. And where are we now, Donnie? We're in the process. More laws. Some enforcement. Some not. And we're still in the struggle. Life is a ritual passage from one phase to another. And for people of color, BIPOC folks... We have to realize that it isn't going to happen the way we want it, when we want it. What is that saying that you preachers talk about all the time? God may not come when you want him, but comes right on time. (laughs) He's always on time. (laughs) (laughs) Or she. (laughs) Or she. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th.
Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. You describe a little bit more about this concept of the sacred journey. As you mentioned, this, the liminal space, the ambiguity, it's part of the the ritual, it's part of the, the sacred journey. Is it helpful for us as humans? Is it helpful for us as members of this village, this global, this cosmic community, this cosmic village? Is it helpful for us to see life as a sacred journey and not just this temporary, momentary opportunity for consumption and capitalistic opportunities. And and when we use the term sacred journey, could you give some context to that? Could you give us uh, uh, a definition and understanding of how you would interpret what the, the journey of life is and what the sacred journey would mean? You know, it's absolutely a sacred journey, but we don't know that when we're younger. Um, and we don't want to think about it in terms of a sacred journey because we don't know for certain where we came from and we don't know for certain where we're going. We know by faith, depending on your faith tradition, you have traditions about who you are, how you got here, and where you will end up. But in the everyday maelstrom of life, people don't want to think about any of that. They just want to get through their day They want to accomplish things. They want to own things. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you get to the halfway point in your life, you begin to realize that all of the things that you have accumulated don't mean a whole lot. And, of course, you can't take them with you. You begin to take into account what really matters in life. And, of course, it's easy to say, and that's family, relationships, um, love, uh, commitment, um, service to others, all that matters. And when you start focusing on those things, it no longer becomes just something to say or something to do or a churchy phrase. It really warms your heart to work with others. It changes who you are to lead with love. So, The journey is absolutely sacred because we are not just flesh and blood. We are also spirit beings. And what other kind of journey could a spirit being take except for a spiritual journey? And Father Richard Rohr, really, he does a good job at at, uh, painting a picture that everything is sacred, um, that everything is spiritual in a sense that what we tend to define as secular and define as sacred, that in actuality, there is no division, that there is a oneness there, that there is a lens that we could actually look through that sees everything as part of this cosmic community, the, 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 that there is a connection, that there is a, a oneness, if you will, there, that all rolls up to a reality that is beautiful and that the source of that is a divine source that reflects love 
as you say, lead with love, live with love, right? But to see it from that lens, that lens, that perspective, it does come from some insight in order for that perspective to be held. And that insight comes from an understanding of self and who you really are and who we really are. Yeah, Lily uh, Moparan, um, who is a womanist scholar, um, she talks about the innate divinity and inner light as a spiritual practice available to anyone who chooses to recognize the inherently luminous nature of humans and of all creation. She also describes the emergence of an egalitarian society as a luminous revolution, a movement away from materialism toward what she calls luxocracy, a nonviolent social order grounded in spirituality and the rule by light. So, you know, there you have it. You can embrace the healing elements of darkness, shadow, and eclipse while leading by light. Yeah, wow. Brene Brown, she calls it your flame. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that term, your flame, that, that you have a flame, that I have a flame, um, that everyone has a, a unique flame that is, that is specific to them and at the same time powerful enough to be compassionate and generous. There's enough capacity in that flame that gives you what you need but there's enough capacity, right, to give me what I need. Yeah, and everybody has that flame. I mean, do you remember when we were interviewing Dr. Peter Gatke, who runs a homeless shelter in, in Memphis? He sees that flame in people who are unhoused, who have no jobs, who are living on the streets. Uh, can you imagine what life would be like if instead of focusing on what people did for a living— and being, beginning the question with, what do you do? We focused on the flame, the light within each human being. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in our tradition, we call it uh, the divine image or the Christ image, right? Um, but that is a universal image. It's not just for people who confess, <laughs> you know, Christ, but it's, a, it's something that is within all of us, uh, regardless of your confession and the ability to see that regardless of your behavior or your, your articulation of your thoughts, um, it's really powerful. And that is compassion. That comes from a deep source, an indestructible source. It comes from a well that is eternal. Um, it comes from that flame. <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, I'm on the other side of 50 now, and mm -hmm. all of my priorities have shifted. <laughs> Every single one of them. The ambition all of the things that I was striving for um, don't make a lot of sense at this point. Um, the fulfillment comes in doing what you're led to do. I mean, that leading light. You know, the Holy Spirit is supposed to, in the Christian tradition, lead you into all truth. I see it as a light, a guiding light, um, where you're walking by the path um, and there's a lamp under your feet that helps you to know what to do and how to do it. And to be still, this is where contemplation comes in. It is impossible to shift priorities if you are in a constant, busy, frenetic lifestyle. 
there has to be that pause, that breath, that waiting, that willingness to be still until you know. Be still and know. Well, the stillness doesn't immediately lead to knowing. I mean, first you have to be still, and then you have to be patient until the knowing comes about. This is a beautiful transition because um, in your title of this chapter, uh, you speak of cosmic rebirth. So uh, this understanding of Afrofuturism, and I, for Don, I like to see this because it is very critical for people who have been who have experienced trauma, who experience, who have been marginalized, who have experienced oppression, who have been, whose identity has been, you know, reshaped. It's really important for them to be able to have a vision of a brighter future. It's important for them to be able to see themselves differently. But this, this concept is for, every, you know, it, there's a reality there that is for everyone. There's an individual, but there's a communal perspective here too. And so the journey of life, this some, some great wisdom to come from this idea, and I think it's important for our listeners that even this concept of Afrofuturism is not just for people who may be within that community. Um, but I really want to center in, Dr. B, on this idea of, of decentering race and, and, and cosmic rebirth. And how would you describe to our listeners this concept of cosmic rebirth and new beginning? Well, I mean, it depends on your perspective, but I take cosmic rebirth as a immersion into everyday mysticism. I think I choose that aspect of cosmic rebirthing because I am an everyday mystic. As you well know, um, I was born into a family of shamans and root workers <laughs> and healers, and they saw beyond the veil and mediated the realms of life after life. So they knew how to cure you what ailed you. Um, they could do that spiritually. They could do it naturally. I had more than my share of kerosene and sugar when I had a cold and castor oils. So, you know, there was a mix of uh, medicine and mysticism. Um, they were amazing people, and they're sometimes a little bit scary um, as a result of that upbringing, uh, I loved the signs and wonders of the Pentecostal church, the charismatic church, but I wearied of the constant expectation that something was going to happen immediately. There was always this, you know, if you pray hard enough, you know, then Jesus will break the skies and come to you immediately. And all of that was fine because you want that. Yet, even so, come Lord Jesus. But... There is an everyday life. There are people who are dying on immigrant ships being turned away from countries. There are the poor. There are the hungry. There are just folks with mental illness who are not being treated, who are not being cared for by society. And so it has to be more than just the holy, the holiness untouched by everyday life. I remember being a member of a uh, of storefront Pentecostal church. I used to uh, inhabit those primarily because the smaller and the weirder the church, the more exciting the happenings inside. So, <laughs> you know, don't give me tradition in a high pulpit. I want to go where there's folding chairs and people levitating and all that kind of good stuff. But the problem was, 
in order to get into the little storefront church, we had to step over drunks. We had to say, excuse me, to prostitutes leaning on the wall. Nobody spoke to them. Nobody prayed with them. Nobody invited them in. Everybody was excited to get inside so that the Holy Spirit could start them rolling through the aisles. And so it occurred to me that if we're going to rebirth, then we have to have a mysticism. We have to have the magic and the mysticism that allows us to take care of our neighbors, to love our neighbors, while we're seeking the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. It can't be one or the other. It just cannot. You know, um, mysticism has all kinds of definitions, and all it means to me is that um, this life is not the end of everything. We didn't enter it as a beginning. It was ongoing when we entered it. It'll be ongoing after we leave. And that the boundaries between life and death are permeable. So the real power that we have as individuals, it doesn't come to you from your congressperson. It is seated by the divine. That makes you a spiritual person on a spiritual journey. And if that's not mystical enough, I don't know what is. The hope that is rooted in what you're saying is profound. The hope for healing, the hope for uh, newness, the hope for uh, restoration, the hope for wholeness, it seems that it is always connected to a deeper source of seeing, knowing, and understanding. And I and I and I like this cosmic concept, Doctor B, that you that you're talking about of rebirth, because it is in that hope that I think we all that we all aspire to have, regardless of economics, regardless of status, regardless of power, position. Yeah, there's this. The, it's the human experience is a shared experience. You know, and as the seasons change, as the stars continue to do what the stars, the the astrological entities do what they are designed to do, um, there is a a seed within every human being that is multiplying. And I think, you know, what I think I get from this chapter as it concludes your work, I get that the communal experience of crises, the communal experience of trauma, uh, the communal, the village, right, engagement of not only individual but collective wilderness experiences, that, that, that trauma, the liminal space, the unknowing, the unexpectedness, the unpreparedness, right, the, the pain, the grief that comes with it, the emotions, the anger, right? All the behavioral responses, all of that. But that in that, in that is a gift. In that is an opportunity. In that is a blessing. In that is wisdom. In that is a knowing. In that is a presence that a source that is indestructible. Although everything around you may be destructible, everything around you may be uh, have an expiration date, <laughs> but there is something that is within that that does not. And it takes, what I'm getting, that it takes all of that. 
It takes the crisis. It takes the trauma. It takes the pain. It takes the anger. It takes the misinterpretation, the miscommunication, the the unknowing and not being ready, the frustration, the confusion, the disorder, the reorder, the new order, but back to the disorder, the reorder, and back to the disorder. (laughs) It takes all of that to get to a place where you are centered and that all of your definitions, all of your knowing, all of your wisdom, as Solomon said, is as vapors. <laughs> it's, as, it's nothing. It's, it's like looking at smoke disappear in the sky. I thought it was there. What I thought I knew, I do not know. And it brings me to a place of truly authentically knowing. And that's the blessing. That's the gift. And that's where the rebirth comes from. And it's a journey we can take together. You see, I mean, our, because in the West, there's so much emphasis on race. Um, I've often had um, people who identify as white ask me, what can they do? Because they're as traumatized by whiteness as anybody else is, <laughs> by, um, by white privilege, by white supremacy. And so by decentering race and welcoming cosmic rebirth, we realign ourselves with our neighbors. We recreate the community that has been fractured on the anvil of politics. You know, there's this um, author, Gary Howard, and this is a quote that's a little longer than I would normally offer, but it is so succinct and so good. And it says, what we haven't been able to identify for those who identify as white but are traumatized by the way that whiteness is used in the West to harm others. And it says, racism for whites has been like a crazy uncle who's been locked away for generations in the hidden attic of our collective social reality. This old relative has been a part of the family for a long time. Everybody knows he's living with us because we bring him food and water occasionally. But nobody wants to take him out in public. He's an embarrassment and a pain to deal with. Yet our little family secret is that he's rich. And the rest of us are living, either consciously or unconsciously, off the wealth and power he accumulated during his heyday. So even though many of us may disapprove of the tactics he used to gain his fortune, few of us want to be written out of his will. The legacy of racism, which has been fueled and legitimized by our assumption of rightness, has haunted the house of collective white identity for centuries. And so what what I offer to folks who identify as white and don't want to be traumatized by the oppression of whiteness is stop identifying with your rich uncle. Stop pretending that he's not in the attic. (laughs) Wow. That's great, Dr. B. That's, That's good. So where do we go from here? Where we are today in our society, in our culture, where do we go from here? We need several things that are not readily available right now. We need an understanding of our ritual history and spiritual practices. We need a way to situate ourselves as fully human and divine beings. We know 
need to know how to heal our wounds. Um, we need to, for some of us, to stop or pause energy-sapping activist practices so that we can breathe and be. And every once in a while, I don't know about you, but I need to crawl into the cosmic outline of human possibility and make a home there until the morning comes. And if after several decades we still find ourselves in places of death and destruction, despite all the singing and the marching, if we still find our mother Rizpah fighting on a hill to protect what's left of our bones, then with all the might we can muster, we'll have to make the transcendent leap into the future. We will leap trusting the glory of ancestral guidance, the blessed hope of the dawning of a new world order, and the promises of God. I want to close, Donnie, with this brief litany. We are unique and ordinary mystics in the making, flowing from one state of existence to another, inhabiting the ordinary, touching the eternal. We are embedded in a continuum of life related to the divine, the earth, and our neighbors. We didn't just burst out of nowhere, and we will not disappear when we die. We come from particularity and community, mystics, and cosmic realities. Believe it or not, we have a future. Thanks be. Thanks, B. Dr. B, we want to say thank you for your contribution with this wonderful work, this contribution to the global community. Thank you for your sacrifice. We really appreciate it. And thank you for this time together. Uh, these six episodes have been truly a pleasure, truly a blessing, and I hope our listeners truly enjoyed it also. It's been fun, Dr. Donnie. I've enjoyed it so much. <laughs> On to the next one. <laughs> On to the next one. Well, this has been a great conversation for us to really end this season on. This chapter on Afrofuturism and cosmic rebirth, to me, if I had to summarize Dr. B, it's really about seeing oneself differently. Will race is no longer a limiting factor and we participate in the reclamation, the recreation, and even the rebirth of, of a new beginning of community and identity that is, as you have made it so clear in this episode, rooted in a citizenship that is ultimately cosmic. Absolutely. There is something about having survived generations of uh, slavery, predation, um, and just the stress of living in a world uh, that where white supremacy sneaks into even the safest spaces. And so it takes a lot of effort. It takes community. You don't transform all by yourself. You can't sit in a room and transcend alone. You need community to remind you of your cosmic origins, your God-given spirit. You are not prey. You are loved by God. Selah. <laughs>
Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.